Hey, Osiris listeners. We want to tell you about our friends at Sunset Lake CBD who support this show. Sunset Lake CBD is a Vermont hemp farm crafting affordable CBD products designed to help with sleep and stress without breaking the bank. If you haven't tried CBD before, take it from me, it's a game changer. I use Sunset Lake's tincture every night before I go to bed, helping me get solid, restful sleep. And their gummies are great for daytime. Check out their new Good Vibes gummies, which have just a bit of hemp-derived THC to help you relax and unwind. Sunset Lake CBD crafts products with hemp grown on their family farm and ships them directly to customers. They have tinctures, salves, edibles, coffee, smokables, and even pet products. By the way, their CBD chocolate fudge is awesome. Check them out today at sunsetlakecbd.com and use coupon code TIME for 20% off all products. Sunset Lake CBD, farmer-owned, Vermont-grown. Osiris. Loyalty, described as, do you care? And I care, and that's why I'm on this show. Comes a time, here we go. <laughs> I'm a sucker for O'Teal, man. It's all that same feeling that I have, that what he filled a void that I didn't even know existed. It feels so good to, as Ben said, to try to do something about an issue as opposed to complaining. If you can't help, don't hurt. If we could just all get out there and throw cream pops at each other, maybe things would, instead of bullets and, and <laughs> angry words, it would be better. When you stop laughing, you stop living. There's a worldwide surge in interest in mushrooms. It was deep, man. It's not that TM makes your mind quiet down there. It already is. We're just stuck up here. We've lost access. I'm jumping Jack Flash. Came out by the stones. So I thought, all right, perfect, man. I'm gonna drive, and I started driving through the neighborhood, and I got, I got a text from Mick Jagger. <laughs> People saying that you know what we do is non-essential. Well, playing those few gigs that yeah. you saw me at felt pretty essential to me. It wasn't like they were clapping from here. Is they were clapping from here. My view of things is that death, death is the last and best reward for a life well lived. Like you gotta, it's the strangest of places if you look at it right, you know? If you're liking what you're hearing, head on over to patreon.com forward slash comes a time pod and get your bus pass for an extra episode every week. Welcome back, folks. Another episode of Comes a Time. That's my pal, O'Teal. And that's my buddy, Mike. We had a doozy on doozy. this one. Man, I hope I didn't blow up the microphone. But I'm just excited. <laughs> Peter Coyote, man. Peter Woo! Coyote. He let it loose. He did. It's so great to like put the face to the voice because, I mean... God, it's like that voice is in there. Like I've just listened to so many things that he's how funny too, right? When we get on, it's like this voice make you want to buy a car. <laughs> he I was knows. Like, Used car salesman wasn't exactly what I was thinking. Not but, at all. Okay. Actually quite the opposite. But Yeah, you know. <laughs> yeah. No, this was absolutely incredible. Um we both uh you know, we, and we we wanted to touch on so many incredible points about him. I mean the fact that He's one of those ones where it's just like, wait, can you go back? You were in Hate and Hate Ashbury before Hate Ashbury was Hate Ashbury. Like, can we do an hour on that? Can we do an hour on you in Mexico for you know? Like, can we do 
an hour on you figuring out the beats in New Jersey. Like, there's just so many. There's nine hours that no, we need literally. to circle back around to. Fortunately, I think he's kind of game. I think he liked this. <laughs> I think so he was so like, weird. all right, yeah, I'll come back and talk about that. Let's set it up. I was like, all right, we're going <laughs> to call you right back and set it up, dude. Yeah. So, yeah, this could be a, a nine-part series if he's game. <laughs> you know? I'm into wow. it. I'd listen to him all. Yeah, that was that was amazing. That yeah. was really incredible. And he shared some stuff with us that he just wrote that uh, you'll be hearing in the episode. That uh, I don't even think he didn't send that out yet, did he? I don't think it was an opinion piece he uh, wrote for the New York Times that he asked us to critique. <laughs> like, yeah, right. It's probably crap. I was like, yeah, I bet it's not. Um, <laughs> so yeah, we got a, a sneak peek. I don't know if it will have hit the New York Times by the time the episode comes out. But if hey. it doesn't, you'll get a sneak peek at it. So you there's a little comes of time scoop for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, uh, Peter Coyote. And uh, yeah. we're excited to have you back 19 more times if you'll join us. So uh, we're here on Osiris, home to so many great podcasts. Go to OsirisPod.com to check them out. And if you're enjoying what you're hearing, uh, you got patreon.com forward slash comes a time pod for bonus content every week. So head on over there and join us. Uh, thank you guys so much for listening. Give this one a, a listen over, listen yes. to it and then go back and listen again. You guys know Peter Kyer. You might just may not realize it, but anybody's listening to books on tape, you know, him. you know, him from a many television and movie movies he's done. He's also a writer. Deep cat, uh, 80 years old and looks to like, me like 70 it, tops. I was like going to say uh, so much of his, but yeah, yeah, you'll love it. Watch it. <laughs> Enjoy. See you next week. feel like I know you because of your voice. Exactly. <laughs> Makes you want to buy a car, doesn't it? No, no, not exactly. <laughs> hey, man, I'm O'Teal, by the way. I'm How are you? The musician. Cool. Um, Hi, Mike. It's what a are pleasure we gonna, to meet you. What are we going to do today? I got about 40 minutes. We're going to talk. Good, okay. Yeah, this is free form just conversation. Although I was told you have uh, a new one or two new books out. I have two new books out. Okay. So um, let's I, definitely I talk about those you. two. This is a, uh, this is a first book of poems. It's got 50 oh, yeah. years of work in it. You nice. see, I don't work very hard. It's a thin book, <laughs> <laughs> but it came out of about 300 poems I had left in a drawer from when I came to San Francisco to study with Robert Duncan in 1964. And he was so brilliant. I just thought I'm not smart enough for poetry. So I quit graduate school, but I kept writing. And uh, when I turned 75, I looked in my drawer and it was just stuffed with these poems. And I thought, my poor kids, I'm going to cack and they're going to find this drawer full of paper. <laughs> they're not going to know what to do. They're going to feel responsible for it. You know? So I, hunted through my friends and I started working with a great poet in Massachusetts. And over two years, we winnowed down about 300 poems down to these. So this book came out that year 
And this one is called The Lone Ranger and Tonto Meet the Buddha. Love it. <laughs> yeah, love and it. so for about 40 years, I've been doing classes for not just actors, sometimes businessmen who have communication difficulties. And I use a combination of um, improv and acting exercises to really soften people up, soften up, push them up against their edges of their self, which they never really find until they get a little uncomfortable. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. And then after we do that for half a day, I put a mask on them. And I hold a mirror up in front of them and their personality just goes away and they suck in the personality from the mask and they get about 10 minutes of absolute freedom because all their shyness and self-consciousness and second guessing and all that or shit left with their personality. <laughs> and so by the time they've done that three times with three different masks, they're ready to listen to my Buddhist priest rap that the self is not a fixed organ in the body. It's mm. just an awareness. And one of the things that this allows you to do is incredible problem solving. Like mm. you give it to somebody who's having trouble with a script or a speech or something. And I have them read it as one of the characters they discovered in the mask. 
and it just blows them wide open and it's completely comfortable and funny and on target. And then they can do it in their own voice. So this book is all that stuff. But because I was afraid it would be dry. In the intervening chapters, I have a story about the Lone Ranger and Tonto who are lost in the desert. They're out of work. Their script writer died. They're bloated. The horses are lame. They haven't shaved. And they see the Buddha, this little strange guy camping under a cottonwood tree. And they run over and he jumps up so quickly and he's so expert taking care of their horses that the Lone Ranger surmises he must be the servant of a very rich man. Hmm. Let's hang out here. We'll try to hit his boss up for a loan. And maybe he won't invest in a film. Maybe he'll get us back to Hollywood. And Buddha, of course, sees right through this. And little by little over the course of their travels together, he tricks him into building a treasure house out of stone for his master's treasure, which gets them back in physical shape and gets them working. And each one teaches them to meditate. And each one has an enlightenment experience and goes off on their own way. And it's a it's a funny way of looking at the journey toward awareness in a way that's not too exotic or foreign. So those just came out and I'm working on a third book, which is almost ready. Uh, from March 20th to March 2021, I did Dharma talks every other week because of the pandemic, people were flipped out. They asked yeah. me to do these talks. So I did them and put them on Facebook and then I got them transcribed. And of course I had to go over them to make myself look smarter and take, <laughs> take all the stupid stuff out. And so I put them together into two books and one is just about basic Buddhism, but it's called vernacular Buddhism, like everyday language, not exotic Japanese stuff, just these are human values and qualities and states of mind. And I want Americans to get them clearly. And the second one is called is about engaged Buddhism, which is using a Buddhist perspective to look at politics and issues that come up in everyday life. So there are two slim books. And then um, that's it. And then I play guitar every day, about 40 minutes. I walk my dogs. <laughs> I make jam. and. Uh, I chase a woman around. That's about <laughs> it. I'm 80. What else can I do? Wow. You're this was 80? a pretty incredible wow. day. So, <laughs> you're looking it's a good. tiring day, I'll tell you. <laughs> Especially if they run fast, you know. I'm chasing them with a walker. Anyway, that's about it. Um, so, you know, I retired from movies about, I don't know, six or seven years ago. And my kids were out of school, out of grad school, debt-free. I thought, I don't need this shit. I don't need to leave home and be on the road. And so I can do voiceovers from here, you know, mm. and uh, I can write from here. And my life is here in Sebastopol. And, you know, I'm I'm happy that way. At the Sebastopol keeps coming up like over and over. It's where old hippies life. go to die. It's like <laughs> Fairfax, you know. But this yeah. is like across it's like the, the parallel to like, retire, like retirement community. Yeah, yeah. I, I, like no matter which direction I go, whether it's like UFOs or spirituality or hippies or MK Ultra, like whatever, it just I, there's a lot of Sebastopol hits lately. Yeah. yeah. Well, also fun. the fire, the big fires yeah. out here last year 
sent a lot of insurance money into Sebastopol, building houses. And now Mm. some Texas guy is here buying up properties. And little by little, the town is getting kind of yuppified. I'm I'm running my one man war against it. Yeah. Uh, um, well, you got Mickey Hart up there to help you do it too. Yeah, no, <laughs> I know. I've got I've got all Mickey's. Mickey gave me a whole load of bonsai trees for some oh, work I did for him. Yeah, yeah, he he gave me about ten of them. Yeah, These he's got some good ones. He's got a whole section of his incredible yeah. garden. Well, the best thing him. he did was give me his gardener, Garth. <laughs> I mean, I, Garth came with these trees, and Garth and I have been working together for the last five years. See, that's great. When you have to plant sit and it comes with a gardener, that's yeah, that's the it, job to get. Exactly <laughs> right. Like, Can you watch my dog? And here's the, you know. The, the best the gig kennel. is the plant. Yeah. <laughs> Are you, did you, when did you head West first? Did you grow up on the East coast? Correct? Yeah, I did. I, I left, I left home when, well, I left home to come to California when I was 17, just to look at it, just to have been reading about the beats. And on the way back, I went to stay with a family friend in Mexico who was sort of the first really out gay man I'd ever met. Uh, he was a ballet dancer in Martha Graham's company and a real bebop hipster from Hawaii. I mean, he was Billy Holiday's roommate at the Hotel Teresa in New York. Wow. And he knew everybody. He was a genius, but not wrapped too tight. So <laughs> when I was going to Mexico, my parents were really nervous. They said, well, what will you do? Who will you look after? I said, I'll go stay with David Campbell. They went. All right. Okay. I don't know what they were thinking. Anyway, David ran us through Mexico. And one of the things he did was, no, I guess I was 16, was he turned us on to weed. And he gave us this whole rap about weed being non-addictive. And my parents were both drinkers. And I'd lost a couple friends in a car wreck. Because I grew up in New Jersey about... 30 minutes away from New York where you could drink at 18 oh. and people would make this long run up the highway and come back loaded. Sometimes they didn't make it. So I didn't know how long I, when I was going to come back to Mexico again. So, and it wasn't expensive. So I thought I better get enough to last for a while. So I got eight <laughs> kilos. <laughs> oh, all right. Yeah. <laughs> eight kilos. And we were we were locked in a hotel room in Mexico with like towels under the door, my buddy and I, and we were like ripping this stuff off the branches and stuff and packing it up into, you know, packets and wrapping it in saran wrap and shit. Of course, if you looked at the window where the 3000 narcotized flies were comatose on our window, you could have told who was in the room. Anyway, we we got we drove back and my friend David gave us this long lecture about um, Chekhovian acting, which would have served me really well later when I was an actor, how wow. you couldn't pretend to be innocent. You had to believe that you were bringing a life saving medicine back to the United States and just, you know, I put on a tie and we drove across the border directly into the police who pulled us over there and found the eight kilos and took us directly to jail. Oh my God. And if I had been 18, I'd still be there. Mm. But I was 17. And when all was reconciled, I was a judge delinquent and put on probation till I was 21, told to go home and keep my nose clean. 
Man. So that was my first trip to California. So when I graduated, I went to school in the Midwest in Iowa. And then when I graduated, I came to San Francisco for graduate school to work uh. with a poet here that I liked. And I moved right into the Haight-Ashbury and there was nothing going on. It was just before the psychedelic shop opened, before Nasidica opened. It was just a sleepy blue collar community and little PD Coyote was there, you know, just <laughs> waiting to get in trouble. <laughs> you got there before them. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, one of the reasons that uh, there's a few reasons we wanted to have you on. One of the big ones for me was uh, I saw you on a podcast. I think it was Jeffrey Mishloves. And you told this story. I guess you had moved to a commune and things weren't going very well in your life at that point. And you, your dad showed up with a bunch of booze. You told this oh, story. Yeah. You were like, Dad, give me some advice. Can you tell that? Because yeah. the thing that he told you. Yeah. I was like, we got to have that guy. Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> let me give you the background. Yeah. So I had done a lot of acting in college. So I started acting in San Francisco and I was acting with this theater company called um, the Actors Workshop. And the best people had just been taken to New York to start Lincoln Center. And this was sort of the dregs of an old company just trying to hang on. And we did a show and we had two theaters. We had the Marine Memorial on Sutter Street, a big 1200 seat theater. And then a little theater called the Encore down on uh, Mason Street between Sutter and Geary. And we were renting that out to a little theater. And I walked by it one day and they had all of these pictures of these gorgeous women in like 17th century dresses with their boobs poked up and performing in the park and everyone was having fun and stuff. And I was working in this really heavy duty theater and we were doing a world premiere. And I, so I decided to take pictures like that other theater did. And I made 80 photographs and I printed them and put them on fiberboard in the lobby of the rehearsals and this huge revolving stage being made and everything. And so the opening came and it was a big success and nobody in the company said a word, not thank you, not nobody even mentioned months of hard work on my own nickel to do this thing. So I went down and I auditioned at the San Francisco Mime Troupe. And I was there the next day. And that's, I really blossomed there. They let me direct, they let me write. Pretty soon I was directing cross-country shows. And then Emmett Grogan came and he and Billy Murcott kind of introduced us to the diggers. And one of the ways that they pushed us was they said, look, this show is great. What we did was we took 17th century Italian Commedia dell'arte shows like Punch and Judy for grownups. And we rewrote them for po contemporary political issues. And we were like the darling of the left and they loved us. We performed in the parks where the people were and we passed the hat and that's how we lived. And we're like guerrilla theater group, you know, anyway, Emmett and Billy said, you know, you could do more. You guys are safe up there on the stage. You've got everything under control, but why don't we take these theatrical instincts and abilities and and create plays out in the street where people won't know it's a play and really question property and private property and take the whole thing on. And that was intriguing. So the first thing we did was San Francisco was plagued with runaways. 
and the city wasn't doing anything about them. And the hip hate Ashbury merchants who were trying to sell their hash pipes in their saris were calling the police to drag them out of their doorways. So the dentists coming by in Greyhound buses to take our picture could go in and shop. So we started feeding people. We started going to the farmer's market and getting free food, making big pots of stew. And we were feeding 600 people a day. Wow. And all you wow. had to do to get it was step through a big six foot by six foot yellow frame called the free frame of reference. <laughs> Bring a bowl and a spoon <laughs> and step through the free frame of reference. That's and awesome. on the other side, you got this food. And when people would try to pay, we'd say, no, it's free. Don't you want to live in a world with free food? So then we began doing other things. Like there used to be an on-ramp to the freeway on the bottom of uh, uh, Oak Street. So we set up at rush hour traffic, we set up a table with four chairs, linen, crystal, breakfast, coffee, set for four places. And Ron Thalen and I would sit there reading the newspaper 10 inches away from bumper to bumper rush hour traffic. And when people would look at us like, what the fuck are you doing? We'd say, you want to have breakfast? And anybody could have gotten out of their car and changed their life. Or we'd That's go awesome. downtown to Montgomery Street when the when the stock market was getting out. And we had a, a semi-truck. We had bare-breasted women dancing and black guys playing kungas. And we're offering wine and weed to the stockbroker saying, come on, get on the truck. So finally, we opened up a free store. And we had a really beautiful storefront at Cole and Carl. And all the stuff was donated. We fixed it up. Everything worked. Televisions, tools, clothing, furniture, whatever. And it was a free store. And so the, the hidden question was, why do you want to become an employee to make the money to become a consumer? We'll give you the shit. Now, what do you really want to do? And this store flipped people out. Like one day I went up, I saw this older black woman and she was, she was stealing. So I went up to her. I said, you know, you can't steal here. She said, I'm not stealing. She got really indignant. I said, I know you're not stealing because it's a free store. You can just take whatever you want. You don't have to hide it in your shopping bag. She said, really? I said, yeah, it's free. You know, it's free. She says, it's free. I said, yeah. She said, get out of my face. I said, oh, okay. So the next day, she came back with a flat of day-old donuts and left it in the store. Ah. She got a free exchange immediately. Well, we also had a whole bunch of draft cards and blanks and the codes to make them legal. Like if it was from Georgia, we knew how to put the numbers in that would make it real. Oh, and with a little delicate questions, a bunch of kids going to Vietnam could stop in and Billy from Oklahoma could leave his uniform on the free clothes wrap and leave as Bobby from Tuscaloosa. So that was our that was our draft resistance. Anyway, we did that for about three years. And, you know, my ideal in life was not running a soup kitchen. So eventually we, we were all living communally because it was the only way we could live. You could have one or two women, mothers on um, uh, social assistance, and that would pay the rent and electricity. And we would just hustle for everything else. 
So we began moving out to the country and living on communes. And we had chains of communes running from the Trinity Siskiyou wilderness through forest knolls, through uh, forks of salmon, through Salmon Creek. And one of the problems was that, you know, we brought all our bad habits and stuff with us from the 50s and 60s, from traumatic homes and unresolved issues and problems. But we were also trying a whole bunch of new stuff. And so looking backwards, I can tell you that while we lost all the political wars, we didn't end racism, we didn't end unregulated capitalism, we didn't end imperialism, any of that shit. We won all the cultural wars. Mm. The women's movement, the environmental movement, organic food movement, alternative spiritual practices like yoga, vipassana, Buddhism, alternative medical practice, naturopathy, homeopathy, acupuncture, all that stuff people are doing in their lives, changing the culture on many levels. But the weekend you wanted me to talk about was took place out in Olima. And there was about 20 of us living in a 19th century redwood farmhouse. It had one big living room. It had one, one bathroom. It had one, two, three, four, five little other rooms for bedrooms and a kitchen and a five-gallon kerosene hot water heater. Wow. And there were like 20-something people there. And people made homes out in the barns and the outbuildings, and they put up cardboard walls and stole lumber. And it was pretty hard scrabble, dirt poor place. And one weekend in the, in the blizzard of, of 1970, uh, rained like, like Noah's Ark kind of rain. And we were at the end of a mile and a half long dirt road. Oh. Suddenly this brand new Chevy rented Chevy pulls up in the middle of this rainstorm. And my dad and mom get out unannounced, no word that they were coming. My dad's got a case of scotch on his shoulder and a bar with a thousand second alls barbiturates <laughs> in it in his, oh, in wow. his hand. And the hell's angels are there and we're all inside and it's wet and steamy in the as a wood fireplace and you know my mom and my mom's sitting on the floor and people are offering her joints she's saying no darling i've got my viceroy thank you and it's like crazyville and my dad's at the kitchen table as hell's angels on either side of him they're watching him punch holes in his second all and they're saying why are you doing that he says because when i want him to work i want him to work fast anyway and he's giving him he's giving him reds which the angels called belligerents. And they come up, and my dad was a, was a sparring partner with world light heavyweight champion, Philadelphia Jack O'Brien. He's a black belt in judo. He was a murderous guy. And when the Hells Angels came too near him, he'd just say, faggot, get out of here, you know? Wow. And I, I was going to die in a fight having to defend my dad. It was not looking good. So somehow we got through that day about 11 o'clock at night. I go in the kitchen. The two angels are passed out on the counter. My dad's holding his head up. And you also need to know that we were not very close. He was a very intimidating guy. I, I thought my name was shit for brains until I was 17. That's about all he called me. 
you'd say things like, I know you got two, I know you got three numbers in your IQ, but I don't know where the fucking decimal point is. Okay. So he looks at me and he says, you're a better man than I am. And I said, what are you talking about? And he says this, and he waves his arm around. I said, Jesus, dad, this isn't even a dress rehearsal. I mean, we're just hanging on by our fingernails. He says, I know, shut the fuck up. He says, I know. He said, you're taking care of each other and you're sharing what you have. Who does that? So I thought, wow, he really saw what we were trying to do. And I was really moved. I didn't get compliments from him. And I said, well, how about a little advice, man? We could use a little advice. He said, okay. And he passed out. (laughs) So I sat there a minute and I thought, okay, just I waited. And about five minutes later, he snapped awake. And this is what he said. It's almost verbatim, 52 years later. The other thing you need to know about him was he was a stockbroker. Yeah, that's what I was hoping you would And until he lied, he had a lot of money. Everything he touched made money. He had 3,000 acres of cattle ranch, an hour and a half from New York City. He was the president of an oil company, of a railroad. And, you know, he just, when I was growing up, he'd never tell me what anything cost. He said, fuck it, you don't need to know. You're going to teach at Harvard. I'll give you enough money so you can get your fly rods made and your suits made. I said, okay, what did I know? So this is what he said. He said, capitalism is dying of its own internal contradictions. And I ought to know I'm one of them. He said, and the sons of bitches running it don't give a shit about you or your children or their own children or grandchildren. They paid their dues and they want to get what's theirs out of it. You think it's going to take five years. It's going to take 50. And there are huge historical forces at work. Don't let them crush you. Keep your head down. Take care of your women and your children. Figure out a way to survive and aim for the long haul. That's it. And, you know, in those 50 years, I've never seen anything he said come up wrong. Yeah, man, when I first heard that, it was like... The whole Robin, a triple Robin Hood arrow <laughs> through the forehead, then arrow yeah. through that arrow, and then another third one. Yeah. Because this is where I feel like I'm living right now. Except you for, are. for me, it is five years. <laughs> right? Yeah. He called it back then. Yeah. He and, called it. Because he could see the historical for, forces at work. And he was very brilliant. He, he went to MIT when he was 15. Wow. I mean, you know, he didn't understand me because I'm left-handed. I'm, I have a right dominant brain. Same I'm just here. complete. I couldn't do math, like you know, all this shit. But he was brilliant. He was a che- played uh, chess every week with Edward Lasker, world grandmaster. And then they both took up this Japanese game called Go. Go and yeah. the 12 Japanese guys came over and gave him a fan and a scroll as Whoa. a beginning amateur at professional level. <laughs> so, you know, yeah. there's no much smarter and intellectually logically smarter than I was. And um, left brain speaking. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But right. Honest, too, because a lot of honest. those guys are not 
on, they're honest with each other, but they're not honest with the rest of us about what the game really is. Yeah. The fact yeah. that he so, said that they don't care kids. about their own children yeah. or grandchildren, because that's what kept hanging me up. I was like, these people don't care about their own grandchildren and we're messing up the environment. Right. Like, what are we dealing with? Is it an so, addiction or is it evil? Or can what I is read? It? Can I read you something? Please, yeah, please. All right. This is a draft of a letter that I'm writing as a comment to the New York Times because on exactly this point, okay? So just a minute. Let me just get this thing up here. Take your time. Yeah, I'll read it to you. I forget. We're not doing um, open recent opinion New York Times. Okay. So this is the kind of stuff that no one fucking talks about. So I'm going to print it out and then I'm going to, I'm going to read it to Absolutely. you because Go for it, it. it's on point. Because I'm on the five-year plan. Like, when I'm you're probably trying right. get, I'm trying to get my family out of the country. Well, you may Period. not be wrong, but it's hard to know <laughs> yeah. where to go. Well, I got a few ideas about that, but it always comes down to the timing. And yeah. so, you know, people ask, well, how long do you think you got? And I'm like, well, if you got to ask, uh, <laughs> yeah. it's time the to go. The clock has started, yeah. 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 So here we go. <laughs> a minute. So this is this is the way that... This is the way that I see it, and this is a draft, so you guys can can tell me that you think I'm I'm full of shit or whatever, <laughs> but um, this is how I, I see it. It's called a hard look. The evidence is overwhelming that nearly a third of the United States has not simply lost faith with a candidate or a party, but with liberal democracy itself. Recent polls demonstrate that nearly a third of Americans anticipate having to bear arms against their government. Donald Trump may be the most recent trigger for this response, but he's not the cause. And to date, the cause remains unexamined, buried beneath the blame-shame tactics of intra-party competition. Let me cite a few stations of the cross marking the route that both parties have taken in the essential betrayal of working-class, non-college-educated Americans, causing festering resentment and bitterness and the boil that burst on January 6. Richard Nixon's Ag Secretary, Earl Butts, tells family farmers they need to, quote, get big or get out, Mm. encouraging them to take on debt and buy heavy machinery says they'll be protected by their rising land values. Ronald Reagan's inauguration names government as the enemy. He fires 11,000 striking aircraft traffic control officers. The corporate sector follows suit. The National Labor Relations Board is weakened. Right-to-work states open everywhere in the path to nearly destroying the wealth-building mechanism of the middle class, the unions, begins. Newt Gingrich defines the Democrats as evil and calls for winning at any cost. Tactics putting the game of America itself at risk. Jimmy Carter's Fed chair, Paul Volcker, raises interest rates five points in a single day to signal serious intentions about fighting inflation. The unintended consequence wipes out hundreds of thousands of small family farms. 
with each five farms, a local business dies and the Midwest Mm -hmm. becomes a dead zone. The farms are scooped up by agri-industry and the farmers are now essentially sharecroppers. The savings and loan scandal, banking deregulation, rips $250 billion of personal savings and pensions out of America. GATT and NAFTA ship millions of jobs overseas, and unlike our Western European competitors, America spends less than any of them on retraining workers for new jobs. Instead, they get the opioid and crystal meth pandemics. (laughs) Bill Clinton ushers in financialization, sending the Democratic Party after the big money that's been exclusively Republican and catering to Wall Street. He ends Glass-Steagall, which allows banks and insurance companies to speculate with customer cash. And more importantly, the Financial Modernization Act prohibits regulation of credit default swaps, the insurance policy for the liar's loans mortgages, beginning in the new speculative atmosphere after Glass-Steagall. The economy collapses in 2008. And despite the assertions of federal regulator William Black, who insists that this could not have occurred without cooperation of the C-suites, not a single person goes to jail or pays a substantial fine. Finally, wages remain frozen in buying power from 1973 until last year, while both Democrats and Republicans sit on their hands and allow 3% inflation to deliver an invisible 30% wage cut to working people during that decades. American workers may not know how the sausage is being made, but they fully understand that it's toxic. If we remember, Donald Trump ran his campaign by co-opting Bernie Sanders' rhetoric. That's why it made sense to people. It's the abandonment of the middles, the loss of their protection that creates the unrest, expressing itself as racism, antipathy to government, hatred of women who are now competing with men in the labor force. Until our legislators look at the corrupting role of money, which is the core of our electoral system, there'll be no meaningful changes made. And what might they be? Full federal funding for elections. Every candidate gets the same amount, period. And we judge their creativity by how they spend it. Corporations whose employees can vote and donate are prohibited from using their funds to influence public policy for the benefit of their shareholders. And finally, absolute ending of gifts, emoluments, junkets, speaking tours, promises of jobs from lobbyists to legislators and vice versa. These three changes would radically alter the dynamics and responsiveness of legislators to the people's needs. We're paying their salaries while nearly 50% of their time goes into daily fundraising. Our emails are full of pleas with tin cups attached. Until we take the big money out of the equation, the Congress will remain a wholly owned subsidiary of big capital. And see, here's the the beautiful part of what what you're saying – Recently, I've been saying we're watching the instituting of economic apartheid in America, and you just spelled it out beautifully, Beautifully. succinctly. And it's taboo to talk about. 
Well, and and a lot of people they don't even remember they were they were born after nine eleven. Like they don't remember yeah. Glass Steagall yeah, really. going away or Watergate. You know, yeah. like. So, but here's my point that I'm getting to is those three things that you said need to happen, which I all agree with all of them. They're not going to happen. That's right. They're absolutely. Not through the structure, not. the way it's set up. And through the whole, like, you know, you hear it, the thing I hate about the Democrats the most, we got to let the system where it works slowly. Hey, man, we got a climate crisis, like bearing down on us. We have a air, we have a civil war bearing down on us because- Middle America, white middle America is not used to this. Yeah, and, they're used to being in charge. Or at least having enough. Yeah. Right? So yes, now yes, yes. when this happens and it's happening and it's happening, tent cities everywhere. Like I'm you scared bet. to go out when I'm on the road and just walk around. I'm like, I don't yeah. feel safe. Everywhere feels like a you powder bet. keg, right? You bet. And I'm staying at the Four Seasons and the Mandarin and the, the, and the nicest neighborhoods. There's like street people living under shit like yeah. a block from the Four Seasons. You got everywhere. it. Right? Everywhere. Yeah, oh, it's insane. And I'm like, I, you know, we adopted our daughter from India and I'm like, this has turned into India. It's just different. Sporting goods tents instead of like yeah. rag. Yeah. Do you know right? where it began? But with the guns, the guns that we have here yep. is how why it's not gonna go peacefully. It's not gonna go well. That's why I, was, I gotta get out of here with my kids because I'm like this thing is gonna blow, man. Like, I think so. I I remember when Ronald Reagan signed the law ending the subsidy for low income housing. Which meant if you were two couples living in a place and one of them died, there was no subsidy and you were homeless. Yeah. Uh, I I remember remember when he ended the all the uh I shouldn't call them insane asylums, but that's what we called them back then. All of a sudden I came home, I got from Washington DC. I come home and like people, you know, in the subway vents, the yeah. homeless people would lay there. And in the wintertime, the, all that heat would come up and then some would freeze to death once the, the moisture yeah. got all through their clothes. So t- it just went in crazy. All of a sudden there were so many homeless people and they were obviously mentally ill. And he just like closed them up and they just turned them out on the streets. I was like, mom, what's going on? She was like, Reagan, that asshole. (laughs) Well, it was not quite, that was part, I was in California government at that time in 75. And it was supposed to be a a two-part plan. They were going to close the big holding tanks of mental asylums, and they were going to build little neighborhood centers where there would be, (laughs) well, the people said not in my backyard. Sure. The voters nixed it. You know, they might've had 10 homeless people or, you know, uh, distressed people in their neighborhood, but there would have been money to have monitors and people looking after them. But they yeah. just said, nope, we don't want them in our neighborhood. Well, and they ended up getting out everywhere anyway. If you just turn them on the street, it's like, oh, That's man. right. And you just, walk around New York City right now, and it feels like a ticking time bomb. I mean, it's yeah. just like everyone is so angry and so... And now the Supreme Court has said... Anybody can have a gun yeah. anywhere. The Texas, no training. They call it constitutional carry. You don't yeah. have to have any training. You don't have to show. Any, you know, I'm in the NRA because I grew up in a time where I was on the rifle club and I was a camp counselor 
And, you know, I got it's like Boy Scouts and NRA were not that big deal. I shoot shoot every week. I'm training for competition. Wow. Right. And I I go there so I can talk to these guys. The guys I'm with are not crazy. You know, they don't like the NRA either. But the NRA gives us money for this gun club and. But if they support Trump, I got to resign. Yeah, that's what I announced yesterday. (laughs) Anyway, it's to me, it all boils down to money. The news media has the same business model as Facebook. They sell your attention to advertisers and consequently they frame every story to be either sentimental, irritating or frightening. Right. And that's and that's the way they keep their viewership which allows them to set higher ad rates, which allows them to get bigger bonuses. And everybody is corrupted by it. And it is taboo to talk about. All you'll ever hear is we need to get the money out of politics, but no one ever comes up with a plan. Well, it's how how do you do it though? It's so big now. So I have have one idea. Citizens United, like, yeah, you know, it's a, that killed us. Yeah, that, 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 changed us from a democracy to a corporatocracy. Exactly. We're not really a republic anymore. Yeah. Yeah. You know? So here's what I think. There's smarter (laughs) people than me that'll figure this out. But I think that if people really got together and started like a a national strike, began just using as little of everything as they could, Mm. buying a gallon of gas, buying two or three days groceries, no new clothes, just trading clothes with one another, stop the flow of money to the corporate sector and said, we're not going to do it. That would be a nonviolent possibility. But they'll kill you getting there because I I always say like, you know, you could change, we could change Walmart and Amazon in a week. If people realize their own power, this is a problem with like education. That's why they messed up education on purpose. So you don't realize your own power. If people quit shopping at Walmart for one week or stopped Amazon for one week, they would they would bow in seven days because they understood, you know, if they understood that it was a way to maybe get at the core of the whole thing, the the politicians are not going to take their noses out of the trough. No. So it's not going to be voted in. Not exactly. It's going to have to be, it's going to, you're going to have to get the women, the pro-choice, the the race people, the Latinos and Mexicanos. You got to get all these people together and they say, this is what we got in common. We're Mm -hmm. under the yoke of money. And let's just stop sending them our money. But, you know, everybody's got one of these $700 phones. Yeah. Everybody's, you know, got wants a bad ride. And Everybody wants slick. This is a good microphone. You know, it's not cheap. So. And, and then Amazon says, hey, it's Amazon day. Yeah. So make sure you order today. Order everything. Double. So I, this is what I've been writing about and talking about. And just I've been on this thing on Twitter and my Twitters get mailed around. <laughs> but this is as close as I can see to what the core of the problem is. And I'm hoping some really smart guys get on and figure out how to do it. Yeah. I hope people, you know, I never, I know just from 
people that I follow that are historians. This one guy, Dan Carlin, he's great because he says you can never, he said, every time you think a situation is going to go a certain way, and we're talking about big, say, you know, the fall of Rome, whatever. He said, there's always a wild card that comes out of the deck that changes you bet. everything. You bet. So, you know, I'm a spiritual person. I believe in the force, God, whatever you want to call it. There's something going on here. All these synchronicities, like I know something's going on. I think that's the source of that wild card. And I'm hoping and depending on that, I'm still going to get out of here because my kids are too young for this many Look guns. at Australia and, and New Zealand. Yeah, well, I, I know. But that's the other thing I wanted to talk to you about is like when, when I try to talk to people about this here, I mean, we all have family members or friends who have family members that are like Fox News watchers and stuff. Yeah. And so they, I try to talk to them about these things. And I always come back to, they're like, well, yeah, we can't do it. So usually an economic reason or a political reason. And I go, but what about all these other countries? Like, why only us? Yeah. Why only us with the guns? Why only us with the health care? Because we're, crime? we're the why, you know, we're the only ones with totally unregulated capitalism. Yes. Well, it's and the it's Europeans this whole thing have. Of, of, yeah. That's a whole freedom, where it's like freedom, freedom, freedom. I'm like, maybe more discipline than freedom. Maybe not so much freedom. Yeah. I know I'm sound crazy saying that as I play bass with guys from the Grateful Dead, but maybe not so much freedom. Maybe like You're you right said, just it. a little regulation on this shit. So this is where you come into my Buddhist practice, but this is another conversation. I'll come back. But yes. I've got my next people. No, we, we love to have you back. <laughs> but thank you. Yeah. yeah, no, this is fun. And so if you want, let's set it up again. We'll no. do it. We'll talk about the relationship between discipline. Here's the, here's the way to think about it. Everybody knows you can't play basketball without rules. You can't yeah. play football without lose rules. And when Tom Brady let air out of a football, everybody went batshit because they knew it would mean the end of the game. Well, people are ending the game of America yeah. by not following the rules and the norms. Yeah. And once you say we're going to win at any cost, you mean yeah. you're overrunning the rules and the norms, and then you're ending the game. If you want yeah. America to be an infinite game, you're going to lose sometimes. Yeah. But you keep the rules and norms. That's the discipline. But I got to go, boys. No. And I'm happy to come back. <laughs> Thank Such a pleasure okay. having you. Yeah. Well, I'll see you next excited time. Excited okay. for part two. Thank you. Good. Bless see you, brother. Bye-bye. Osiris. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.